0: Ezekiel. As had been foretold by Jeremiah and the other prophets, the kingdom of Judah in 588 BC was destroyed by the Babylonians and it shared the fate of the northern kingdom which had been destroyed earlier by the Assyrians in 722 BC. The city was destroyed, the Temple of Solomon was a heap of ruins, the inhabitants had been carried away to Babylon or had fled into Egypt. Only the poor folk, from whom no uprising was to be expected, had been permitted to remain in the land. Humanly speaking, this should have been the end of the history of the Jewish people. And yet, the time was to come, as the prophets had foretold, when the chosen people were to take root once more in their native soil. That they maintained their nationality and their religion in the hands of the heathen, that they hoped against hope for the day of restoration, and that they learned the lesson of humble submission to God in their long years of trial. This was in due, in great measure, to the prophet Ezekiel, whom God in his mercy raised up amongst them to warn and guide and comfort them during the first 25 years of their exile. The name Ezekiel signifies God-strengthens. It was his parents' profession of faith in the strong God of Israel, whose mighty hand upholds all those who trust in him. Ezekiel was of the priestly stock, probably a member of the house of Sadok, and was himself a priest. He must have belonged to the aristocracy of Jerusalem and taken part in the political events of his time, for when King Joachim was laid captive to Babylon, he was among the 10,000 who were forced to accompany him. He was married, but he does not seem to have had any children. In Babylonia, he was spared the sufferings and privations that were the usual lot of the exiles. We are told that he lived in his own house at Tel Aviv, by the river Kobar the most important colony of all of the captives. Once, when he had retired to a lonely spot on the riverbank, it was in the year 593, he fell into an ecstasy and saw a most marvellous vision. Out of a storm cloud appearing in the north, there gradually emerged the likeness of four living creatures, cherubim, each with his four wings and four faces, and all moving harmoniously together. Looking more closely, he perceived that they enclosed a kind of quadrangular chariot, resting on four wheels, which had an independent motion of their own, though always in perfect harmony with that of the four cherubim, for one spirit actuated both. The four cherubim supported on their heads a firmament, and on the firmament was a throne, with a divine form seated upon it. Speaking from the throne, God commissions Ezekiel to be a prophet of his people, but he warns him that he will encounter much opposition. However, he is not to fear, for God himself will strengthen him. And I heard the voice of one that spoke, and he said to me, Son of man, I send thee to the children of Israel, to a rebellious people that have revolted from me. They and their fathers have transgressed against my commandment even unto this day. And they to whom I send thee are children of a hard face, and of an obstinate heart. And thou shalt say to them, Thus saith the Lord God, If so be, that at least uh, they will hear, and if so be, they will forbear. For they are a provoking house, and they shall know that there hath been a prophet in the midst of them. And thou, O son of man, fear not, neither be thou afraid of their words, for thou art amongst unbelievers and destroyers and thou dwellest with scorpions. Fear not their words, neither be thou dismayed at their looks, for they are a provoking house. The manner in which the prophet accepted the divine commission is as striking as the commission itself. He saw an outstretched hand holding a book rolled up, which, when it was unfolded, revealed nothing but plaints, lamentations and woes. This book he was commanded to eat, When he had swallowed it, he found it exceedingly sweet. The significance of this symbolism is clear. The mission assigned to him by God was uninviting, but he accepted it in the spirit of obedience, trusting in the divine assistance which he found pleasure in carrying out. But he did not underrate the difficulty of his task, as is evidenced by what followed when the vision was withdrawn. And the spirit also lifted me, And took me up, and I went away in bitterness in the indignation of my spirit, for the hand of the Lord was with me, strengthening me. And I came to them of the captivity, to the heap of new corn, that is Tel Abib where he lived, to them that dwelt by the river Koba. And I sat there where they sat, and I remained there seven days, mourning in the midst of them. The exiles of the year 597 were treated very leniently by their Babylonian masters. They had obtained permission to take their families and all of their movables with them, and they were permitted to dwell in communities of their own. Still, the torturing consciousness that they were captives never left them. The temple of Jerusalem was the object of their intense longing. Many of them believed that they had been unjustly dealt with by God, or that their punishment far outstripped their sins. Had they not faithfully offered sacrifices to God, they asked. No doubt they thought he was visiting the sins of their fathers upon them. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge, was a favorite proverb amongst them. On the other hand, they were convinced that God would not abandon the holy temple on Zion. the place of his habitation, be the spoil of the heathen. This consideration confirmed them in their expectation of a speedy end of their captivity. We have offended Jehovah they said but his anger will soon be appeased and we will return to our own lands. They were so sure of this that for a long time they would not build permanent houses for themselves nor so the fields assigned to them by the Chaldeans. They wished to be ready at a moment's notice to return to Judea. Some had even left their children behind them. Evidently, the preaching of Jeremiah had made very little impression upon them. Would Ezekiel have more success? When Ezekiel began his prophetic ministry, he met with such obstinate resistance, as had the other prophets, that he was forced to keep silence for a while. But he was not discouraged. His first duty was to convince the exiles that their expectation of a speedy end of their exile was vain. Vain, too, was their faith in the inviolability of the temple of Jerusalem. Jehovah had decreed the destruction of the city and the temple and the dispersion of the people of Judah. For six years he spoke to his fellow exiles of the impending catastrophe. The destruction of Jerusalem is represented under a variety of symbols. Representing God, the prophet lays mimic siege to the city. Representing the people, he enacts figuratively the severity of the famine which the inhabitants will endure during the real siege under Nakabodonosor. Representing the city, he shows, by shaving and burning his own hair, how the inhabitants will be scattered and perish miserably. Apostrophizing the land of Judah, he rehearses the crimes and abominations that it have been and were still being committed, crimes which can be effectually rooted out only by the destruction of the whole country. On the eve of the siege of Jerusalem, Ezekiel makes a last attempt to open the ears and eyes of his countrymen. Under the parable of the boiling pot filled with the choicest meats, he set forth the utter destruction of Jerusalem. At this moment his beloved wife, the desire of his eyes, dies suddenly. But he is commanded by God not to weep and mourn for her, in order thereby to prefigure the paralysing shock of surprise which will seize his countrymen when the tidings reach them that the city to which they still turned with longing eyes had really fallen. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, behold, I take from thee the desire of thy eyes with a stroke, And thou shalt not lament, nor weep, neither shall thy tears run down. Sigh in silence, make no mourning for the dead. Let the tire of thy head be upon thee, and thy shoes on thy feet. And cover not thy face, nor eat the bread of mourners. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and my wife died in the evening. And I did in the morning, as he had commanded me. The fall of Jerusalem demonstrated the truth of Ezekiel's prophetic word. The sinfulness of the nation was the cause of its fall. Ezekiel had to drive home the all-important truth that the people were not suffering for the sins committed by their forefathers, but for their own sins. The proverb of the sour grapes was not true, at least. It was not the sole truth, although it often seems to express a reality. One man shall not bear the sins of another, he says, but every one his own sins. If a wicked man truly repent, he shall be saved, and if a just man leave his justice, he shall perish. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, What is the meaning that you use among you this parable in the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the teeth of the children are set on age. As I live, saith the Lord God, This parable shall be no more to you a proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, the same shall die. And if a man be just and do judgment and justice, and hath not eaten upon the mountains, nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, and hath not wronged any man, but hath restored the pledge to the debtor, and hath taken nothing away by violence, hath given his bread to the hungry, and hath covered the naked with a garment, hath not leant upon usury, nor taken any increase, hath withdrawn his hand from iniquity, and hath executed true judgment between man and man, hath walked in my commandments, and kept my judgments to do truth, he is just, he will surely live, saith the Lord God. If he beget a son that is a robber, a shedder of blood, and that hath done some of these things, although he doth not all of these things, he shall surely die, his blood shall be upon him. But if he beget a son who, seeing all his father's sins which he hath done, is afraid, and shall not do the like to them, and hath walked in my commandments, this man shall not die for the iniquity of his father, but living he shall live. As for his father, because he oppressed and offered violence to his brother and wrought evil in the midst of his people, behold, he is dead in his own iniquity. And you say, Why hath not the son borne the iniquity of his father? Verily, because the soul that sinneth, the same shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, and the father shall not bear the iniquity of the son. The justice of the just shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. But if the wicked do penance for all his sins which he hath committed, and keep all my commandments, and do judgment and justice, living he shall live and shall not die, I will not remember all his iniquities that he hath done, in his justice which he wrought he shall live. Is it my will that a sinner should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should be converted from his ways and live? The practical lesson to be drawn from all this follows. Let each one repent while there is time. I will judge every man according to his ways, O house of Israel, saith the Lord God. Be converted and do penance, for all your iniquities, and iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions by which you have transgressed, and make to yourself a new heart and a new spirit. For I desire not the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord, God, return ye, and live. In January 586 BC, the news of the fall of Jerusalem reached Babylon. The first period of Ezekiel's activity was at an end. Year after year he had preached the deaf ears. Henceforth he spoke to a crushed and humiliated people, to a people on the verge of despair. For these he had words of comfort and hope. One glorious prophecy followed another. Over against the former leaders of the people who mercifully bro- drove their followers into perdition, who fed themselves, who drank milk and clothed themselves with the wool and killed that which was fat but did not feed the flock nor strengthen the weak nor healed that which was sick nor bound up that which was broken nor sought that which was lost but rather ruled over them with vigour and with a high hand, there now appears the picture of God's tender care for his people. He himself will be their shepherd. For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I myself will seek my sheep and will visit them, as a shepherd visiteth his flock in the day when he shall be in the midst of his sheep that were scattered. So will I visit my sheep, and will deliver them out of all the places wherewith they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out of the peoples, and I will gather them out of the countries, and I will bring them to their own land, and I will feed them in the mountains of Israel, by the rivers, and in all the habitations of the land. I will feed them in the most fruitful pastures, and their pastures shall be in the high mountains of Israel. There shall they rest on the green grass, and be fed in fat pastures upon the mountains of Israel. I will feed my sheep, and I will cause them to lie down, saith the Lord God. I will seek that which was lost, and that which was driven away. And I will bring again, and I will bind up that which was broken. And I will strengthen that which was weak, and that which was fat and strong, I will preserve. Chapter 34 When the dispersed children of Israel had been gathered once more and led back to their homeland, the Messiah will appear. He is called David because he is a descendant of David's house and will walk, as David did, in the commandments of Jehovah. And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David, he shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd, And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David the Prince in the midst of them, and I, the Lord, have spoken it. A new golden age will break upon the world, and I will make a covenant of peace with them, and will cause the evil beasts to cease out of the land, and they that dwell in the wilderness shall sleep secure in the forests. And I will make them a blessing round about my hill, and I will send down the rain in its season. There shall be showers of blessing, and the tree of the field shall yield its fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase. And they shall be in their land without fear, and they shall know that I am the Lord, when I shall have broken the bonds of their yoke, and shall have delivered them out of the land of those that rule over them. Chapter 34 the pledge of all these glorious blessings is the grace and mercy of God who will purify his people from all their defilement. And I will pour upon you clean water and you shall be cleansed from all your filthiness and I will cleanse you from all your idols and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit "'in the midst of you, and I will cause you to walk in my commandments "'and to keep my judgments, and to do them.'" Chapter 36 Considering the desperate condition of the people of Israel, without a king, without a temple, captives in the middle of a heathen population, it's no wonder that they found it hard to believe in the prophet's rosy picture of the future. Our bones are dried up, they said, and our hope is lost and we are cut off. To reassure these disappointed and hopeless ones, God showed the prophet in a grandiose vision that he would endow even the dry and bleaching bones of the Hebrew nation with flesh life. The hand of the Lord was upon me and brought me forth in the spirit of the Lord and sent me down in the midst of a plain that was full of bones. And he led me about through them on every side. Now they were very many upon the face of the plain, and they were exceedingly dry. And he said to me, Son of man, dost thou think these bones shall live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. And he said to me, Prophesy concerning these bones, and say to them, Ye dry bones, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will send spirit into you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to grow over you, and will cover you with skin. And I will give you spirit, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And I prophesied as he commanded to me, And as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a commotion, and the bones came together, each one to its joint. And I saw, and behold, the sinews and the flesh came up upon them, and the skin was stretched out over them, but there was no spirit in them. And he said to me, Prophesy to the Spirit, prophesy, O Son of Man, and say to the Spirit, Thus saith the Lord God, Come, Spirit, from the four winds, and blow upon these slain, and let them live again. And I prophesied as he had commanded me, and the Spirit came into them, and they lived, and they stood up upon their feet, an exceeding great army. And he said to me, Son of man, all these bones are the house of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost, and we are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves, and will bring you out of your sepulchres, O ye people, and will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord, and I shall have opened your sepulchres, and shall have brought you out of your graves, O my people, and shall have out of my spirit in you, and you shall live. And I shall make you rest upon your own land, and you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, saith the Lord. The Lord God, chapter 37. But it was not to be feared that the restored nation would once more become the object of the conquering lust of the surrounding nations. All such fears were dispelled by the prophecy against the mighty Prince God of the land of Magog, who will assemble the nations of the north for the purpose of annihilating Israel, but whose armies will be most ignominiously routed through Jehovah's intervention. A new Jerusalem, set upon a very lofty mountain, with a wonderful temple in which God will be perfectly worshipped, will place the seal, as it were, on God's final triumph over the world. From the temple, blessings will be poured out over all the lands in the miraculous messianic fountain, which will make all things new, even the Dead Sea and the wilderness of Judah. Jerusalem itself will be of gigantic dimensions with twelve gates, one for each of the tribes of Israel, and its name shall henceforth be, The Lord is there. The last recorded prophecy of Ezekiel is dated April 571. How long he continued his labours after that we do not know. It is very doubtful whether he lived to see the de- death of Nebuchadnezzar and the liberation of Joachim in 561. Pseudo-Ephanias, in his Light of the Prophets, says that he was put to death by one of the chief men among the exiles whom he had denounced because of his idolatry. The prophecies of Ezekiel have always been acknowledged as canonical by the church nor was it ever disputed that he was their author. We are told, however, that the Sanhedrin of the Jews deliberated for a long time whether his book should form a part of the sacred writings because of the obscurity of many passages, especially the first and last chapters, and because he says that the son should not bear the iniquity of his father, which they urged was contrary to Moses, in the book of Exodus 20, verse 5. Ezekiel is not quoted directly in the New Testament, but his imagery is repeatedly employed in the Apocalypse. According to St. Jerome, the Jewish youth were forbidden to read some parts of the book until they had reached the age of 30. Ezekiel's style is impetuous and vigorous. He produces a great effect by the heaping up of details and the frequent repetition of certain expressions. With hammer-like insistency, he repeats his words and his figures till they ring in our ears, even as they must have rung in the ears of his fellow captives. He is fond of symbols, proverbs, and allegories. His diction is generally clear. Whether he is obscure, it is due to the nature of his subject. Visions are necessarily dark and more or less confused. And Ezekiel has been styled the man of visions,